And welcome to the Dice Are Screaming. Ah! Ah! Oh, yeah, they really are screaming today. Usually sound kind of angry, but hey, welcome. I'm Randy. I have been accused of being Mike, but I deny these allegations. He's one of the many Mikes out there. I, I consider those unfounded allegations. So I'm, for now, allegedly Mike. All right, allegedly Mike. <laughs> there are many Mikes. But you are a unique among those mics. There's only one you, so just remember that. Hey, uh, glad that you tuned in. Hey, we are just going to be rapping about all day long, or at least during this podcast, Birthright. So hopefully you're going to enjoy that, and this is going to be the topic. We're going to ramble about Birthright, yeah. And not precisely a ramble. There's some divided opinions on uh, the strength of its successes and the nature of its failures, Uh you know, it, it's a meaty topic. And yeah, it's I consider it a great setting. So, totally worth the coverage. It's one of the um, it's one of the undiscovered gems. It was popular in its time and enjoyed a certain amount of success, but it's kind of lapsed a little bit. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, we got some call-ins. So, yes, yes, we got go. one from Joe Richter talking about our Griffin Mountain episode. So, take it away, Joe. Hey, boys, I totally meant to call in after your Griffin Mountain uh, podcast because I thought it was awesome. That got me so pumped up. I really, really want to read that now. I got to go search it out as a PDF because it just sounds amazing. You know, it just I love I love that kind of stuff. I just picked up another old school campaign setting slash adventure path for Warhammer called uh the thousand thrones that's pretty gnarly i just started reading that uh even though yeah warhammer is not for me but great stuff awesome episode and i'm excited to see what movie you guys are going to talk about peace out all right hey i'm glad you liked that joe uh we had a lot of fun talking about griffin mountain i felt we missed a couple points but i'm glad we sold it to you hopefully we didn't oversell it to you hopefully you will also get back to us and let us know what you thought of it yeah, this is this is one where we would be really happy to hear some other people's thoughts on having encountered it because this, aside from the historical relevance, it's one that we really enjoyed. Okay, this this one it hits a chord with us personally because it is that good a material to us. So hearing other thoughts would be totally welcome. Yeah, hopefully you enjoy it, and of course, no ducks, but we did have some discussions about people liking ducks, so hey to those people who like ducks, but yeah, you'll find none in Griffin Mountain, and you will find a lot of good stuff about the lore, so we're still talking about it. Yeah, ducks may be inserted into Griffin Mountain via, uh, well, all right, it, like I, I don't want to make that sound weird, you know, like, did I just make it weird? You may have inadvertently, but I don't think your intention was anything but just. Yeah, I, I'm looking back at that one, and I feel like I softballed one to you, and you were too much of a gentleman to make use of that. Oh, I, they totally just go right over <laughs> He's my He's a much nicer guy than me. Uh, that would never have passed if I had been the one listening to me say that. Uh, but if ducks can be included in that setting uh, fairly easily. But do not have to be. But you would expect no less from... <laughs> the benign growth of gaming podcasts. Eh, you know, it's not actually malignant, but you, know, like you, you didn't really ask for it. And it's just there, and you feel like you had to have it checked out. And You know what? you got to ask yourself, is it worth the surgery to remove it or not? If it's not doing any harm, eh... 
<laughs> so you're That's stuck. us. We're not doing anybody any harm. So, At least not intentionally. So, all right. Thanks a lot, Joe. Hopefully you enjoyed the movies. Let us know what you thought, bud. All right. And now we're going to get on with Jason, who takes us to task for movie night. Yes. Hey, guys. Jason here. Yeah, I never got past the first couple minutes of Legend. It's just too overdone and produced for me. Of course, I'm not a big fan of the Scott Brothers. It just, I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't do it. I'm much more a Roger Corman and Lloyd Kaufman guy. Um, Deathstalker is definitely a rapey movie. The second one, a little bit less so. In fact, the second one is a satire of the first one, which is interesting. But And I know Jim Warzowski had to fight to, to do that. Um, but the first Deathstalker, rapey as it is has a ton of great fancy tropes that would that are awesome to adapt for games. As far as Beastmaster goes, of course, done by the great Don Coscarelli of Phantasm fame. And, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty great movie. So, yeah, Beastmaster has a great cast. I lost my last message, so hopefully this flows okay. But, you know, you have Mark Singer, Tanya Roberts, Rip Torn is the bad guy, and, of course, John Amos. Love me some John Amos, even though he kind of gets demoted to kind of sidekick later on. But Beastmaster, of course, as I mentioned, done by the great Don Coscarelli of Phantasm fame. So the thing with Beastmaster is it was filmed in the U.S. It was filmed in California and Nevada. There were no Panthers in that movie. They were tigers that were dyed black. They did have to put the tigers to sleep to die them, and one of the tigers did not wake up. So your rumor about a tiger dying from this movie is true. One of the tigers didn't wake up through the die job. And then as far as nudity, there was a Playboy tie-in where Tanya Roberts appeared naked, but due to some kerfuffles, it, it, it came out after the movie was released. I was going to stop there, but I think it's important also to mention that Beastmaster is loosely, and loosely is the right word here, but it is loosely based on an Andre Norton novel. So very important person in fantasy literature and Appendix N, right? And, and and the second movie, of course, where Dar appears in L.A. I, I think it's L.A. Anyway, he, appear, I, I, he appears in L.A. is, of course, you know, got its own cult status. So anyhow, interesting show. Enjoyed hearing your opinions on these things. And I will talk to you next time. All right, Jason, giving us what for? Yeah, hey, shame on us for missing Andre Norton. Yeah, that actually is super disappointing I, on our part. I remembered as soon as you, I heard you say it, and I was like, oh, man, and I looked up a whole bunch of stuff on and it. I so. used to know that, too, and I forgot it. Well, it's shameful, because I love Andre Norton. All right, it is loosely based. Probably, yeah, sure. um, I have not read the book, so I'm making a remedy of that. But nonetheless, thanks, Plebe. There is... Stuff out there that you can look and research. Um, I wouldn't... Anybody who's enthusiastic about it. Uh, we kind of felt like of all three of those movies that we recovered that... Yeah, that was probably the best one. And, of course, uh, Deathmaster still gets talked about. Look, I get Deathmaster... It was a narrow miss. Okay, we we almost selected Deathmaster for a Or Deathstalker. Death sorry, Deathstalker. Uh, we almost selected Deathstalker for a very specific reason that you cited, which is the gaming tropes connection, which it has in abundance. Okay, it does have those. Uh, you know, it, it's got a lot of classic tropes. 
And I, I might ar- argue against that pick. on it. There's, it, it's like digging in uh, a latrine pit. Okay, <laughs> it, you're gonna get dirty. You're gonna smell. And for what? Some pocket change, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there's better sources to pull from. <laughs> um, I liked the, well. As much as I liked being reminded of the Andre Norton uh, connection, uh, the part that I, I'm i so sad about is I was 100% unaware of the tiger-related tragedies, and now I am. And I, yeah, see, I didn't even know about the Panther, and I also thought it was filmed out of the U.S., but shame on me for that, and shame on them, more importantly, yeah, for it that. Yeah, like it a, like a poorly trained, like, use of anesthetic well i think one of the things is that wow. uh, we were in a different place back then and people didn't place as much emphasis on animal safety especially animal actor safety as they did i'm reminded of that old thing from battlestar galactica where they used to take the uh chimpanzee that was put in a dog suit for muffy and, and the uh trainer would take uh, when it was misbehaving take him in the back room and you can hear the monkey screaming <gasps> slap him around then oh it would come God. out in performance roles perfectly which yeah a terrible thing Holy! I didn't know about that either. Got a little boxy in his uh, moppet, moppet, whatever they called Daggett. His Daggett. Oh wow! I knew nothing of the. I wasn't even. I can't even remember exactly recalling that that was a real animal. I thought it was some special effect costume. It is apparently a chimpanzee, but yeah. So things were different back then. Hollywood tightened uh, its standards up, and maybe that's better for animals that uh, they are mostly CGI now, which, hey, I have no problem with, because yes, uh, if there were something to say, like, I every time I'm going to watch Beastmaster, I'm going to think, well, that freaking tiger died just to make entertainment. Well, and uh, for me, the advent of CGI for great large-scale horse battles, uh, you know, for big cavalry scenes... Yeah. Uh, made a huge difference because the risk to horses during those scenes, that's one I was aware of. Yeah. And that I had, you know, been upset about for a very long time because uh, being, an, you know, a former rider, I, I got to say, uh, nothing, you know, breaks my heart like horses uh, being put at extreme risk. That has always bothered me. Uh, you know, yeah, and, and for just a little thing like, oh, we're making a show, so hey, let's put a whole large number of horses in risk of being killed uh, if they have a leg injury. Yeah, no, I've had to slaughter animals for that. food and for livestock and put animals down that are injured. It's not fun. And it's, before anybody says, oh, you're some wussy guy, well, hey, uh, I don't like killing anymore. Uh, well, you know, obviously not, uh, but... You know, one hopes that you can engineer a situation to minimize the amount. Yeah, of and you know, and and it, and it, it speaks to the different time that that movie was made. Yeah. Nonetheless, take all those things away. I think it stands as a good film, and I oh, think it, yeah. out of out of all, it's the best of the three. Um. So yeah. And I'm kind of with the the, you know, first two minutes of uh, Legend thing. Yeah, that was exactly where I was at on it. Is that first couple of minutes? It's so ham fisted. It's so over the. The, the triacal sweetness. I respect the, the, the Scott brothers and, and, you know, the great production values, but, you know. Hey, Blade just, Runner, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, that. Wow. How can you not like oh, well, I mean, Blade Runner? It's Blade Runner, you know, but 
made could, William Gibson just completely say, "Well, I had an idea for a novel. Well, screw that." Yeah, I'm going to start over again because this is going to be this next thing I come up with is going to be way cooler after I've seen this. <sighs> yeah, totally happened. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway. No, no. All right. Uh, but back on point. Um, thank you so much for the call. Yeah. Thanks, man. Keep them coming, man, because we're going to be doing more movie nights, so stay tuned. Next one will be coming up, of course, in our augury. Yes, as we cast the augury, we, we look on our... Let's do the rooms foretell, Mike. Soothsayer. Yeah, beyond the uh, return of movie nights, which we'll be putting a little space in between us and the next one, but uh, we still have Troll Pack, Travelers, uh, Marches, Adventure 1, uh, High and Dry. Yeah, the High and, and Dry. Uh, Al Kadim and Spelljammer settings, uh, a Call of Cthulhu haunting and mansion of madness, uh, Stormbringer setting, uh, well, Stormbringer the game, Harn, uh, the I wanted to bring in the original, uh, I believe it was Bruce Galloway's fantasy wargaming. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. As a fun one. Uh, and <laughs> uh, also a return to classic era module series review, uh, looking at A1 through 4 uh, as a more micro-examination, because we had covered... The Slave uh, before. We had covered the earlier modules. Uh, yeah, we'll be doing that one as both as uh, looking at it from the tournament and as the super module and as one-offs. And giving those an examination right. in due time. But that's those are further off down. Yes, those remain hazy. So, yeah, stick around for that. More good stuff coming up for you. So, uh, yeah, getting back in. a bit in the, uh, in the augury there. Oh, yeah. Like I, I didn't even have to fondle a lot of sheep guts for that answer. You know. Well, I just cast room. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, th your I just pick up rocks. Your technique is much, is much more appropriate than mine. Although less so. So, anyway, we're going to talk about, we're going to set the Wayback Machine this time for 1995. And it's... Mr. Peabody? <laughs> yeah. So, we're going to Birthright. And this was a original campaign by Rich Baker III and Colin McComb. And that was at TSR at the time when they were kind of at their ebb. Slowly coming down from that. But here is a, a campaign setting that, wow, they finally got all the tokenist influences right rather than rejecting them they full-handedly embraced them just grabbed a hold right this is almost like token here's a setting where there was a climactic battle of a great mountain with gods and they were shattered and empires and kingdoms were changed forever and now you know the lingering power of the gods has been yeah an alliance know, of men down. elves and dwarves destroyed the hold of the against the gob hordes of goblins and uh, more uh, cruel and conquering folk. The the servants of evil had been defeated, but uh, the you know shattering experience. Uh, the god of of light and good was thrown down, but he sent his blood into the ground to oppose the servants of the evil god, who was then vanquished. And so the blood flowed in and into the veins of the scions. Now. Scions, not psionics, S-C-I-O-N-S. Correct. The scions were blood, called the blooded. And if you were the blooded, you were marked for greatness. Sometimes you were of a noble house. And those had maintained their dynasty through 
typical feudal remains, but it was also set in a time where Dungeons and Dragons was changing, and well, Planescape had done a lot to show that the versatility of the system was still there in I, the second edition form. I want to highlight that uh, this was also like a decade after the like advent of uh, the movie we know and love, Highlander, uh, and so you you have this you know unique heritage that affords you certain powers and which can be absorbed from opponents that you have defeated uh, who had a similar source of power. Um, the, con- you know, the, the similarity in that concept is not lost on me, and the, it's kind of an acknowledgement. And it's also another decade before Game of Thrones. The open Tolkienism, uh, the like kind of lineage, uh, heritage of Highlander, and the traditional and familiar trappings of D&D. And, man, this was an ambitious project. So let's explore the trappings. First of all, there are no orcs in the set. Yeah. And we talked about elves and dwarves, but rather than trying to uh, pale them away, calling them moon elves or high elves or whatever you want, these were just elves, and they were the servants of light placed here first to guard the world against the forces of darkness, and they took their job very seriously. And also there were dwarves who were also discovered, but although somewhat gruff and taciturn, they were also, uh, once their loyalty had been achieved, they were great allies. So pretty much fitting those old tropes, in kind, without putting them in new clothing or changing their names, they just put them right in there. And of course we yeah. have half-elves, and then when you have halflings, there's no gnomes, or since there's no half-orcs, but there are halflings. Yeah, who and, says this game has flaws? I mean, it has no gnomes. You can't lose. All right. <laughs> so anyway, the... Uh, that, that is fake gnome hate. I, I don't really feel that way. The haplings come from a realm that was shattered by a, a well, somewhat um, indeterminate foe. And they had fled the plains and came here to settle. Yeah, still tainted by the evil that had consumed their original homeworld. And so now they're here, and they are a lot different than the humble Shire folk that you would encounter in Tolkien. Yeah, not nearly as, uh, you know, uh, cutesy, innocent, Tolkien-esque as one might have initially expected, considering that there are more Tolkien-like elements uh, in this. Uh, You know, we we mean Tolkien-like in terms of the overarching theme that is presented, you know, like a true battle between good and evil. Uh, You know, the tests the spirit and well-being of uh, all those who participate in such difficult times. That's more like the Tolkien element. In this case... Well, also in combining it adroitly with the Arthurian ideal. And the Tolkien element of the fantasy, there's a great battle, there's a shattering of of an old order, and now a rebirth that has changed the world. Rather than being surmounted by a ring that has to be cast into a fiery pit, this is epitomized more through characters. And the characters, which we'll discuss, but getting back to the main part of this, it was a game influenced principally by heredity, the maintenance of bloodlines, nation building, and war. And so all these elements are in the game. They're not abstract, like, okay, we're going to have war and it's just going to be this thing where it just happens and it's narrated and you listen. Or we're going to play this out on tabletop. No, this is absolutely part of the game. Warfare, trade, Commerce and development are and all parts of this game. Super important to remember that 
unlike so many other iterations, you know, like I, I'm, we're not contending that these things did not exist before. Uh, there is much in the first edition. Yeah, the battle guide. system kind of had a campaign setting, the Bloodstone. Yeah, in the first and second editions of uh, D&D, both had their share of placing options around there for you uh, regarding commerce, trade, uh, inter-kingdom rivalries, uh, the eventual assumption of noble title and rank, along with the lands and responsibilities to kingdom that come with it. All of these things could have been in play, but in Birthright, for the first time you see them all as an interlinked necessity. All of these elements more or less have to be respected to some degree, or you're playing the wrong game. <laughs> right. So the world setting is called Abrinus, and it has four big continents on it. Uh, the main one that takes place is Cerulea, which is a the southwest portion of, which is called Inure, which kind of corresponds to England, Gondor, or even uh, late Imperial Rome, if you want to get in certain parts of it. And there's other places, too. There's a place of uh, Northmen and Celts that are overseen by Druids. And there's also kind of a, a Slavic area. Rector. Yeah. Vosgard. And there's a place of almost Moorish customs. with Genesai. Uh, yeah, which has a sun goddess of enlightenment and empowerment. And all these... Vosgard. Yeah, all these folk live relatively in harmony now since the evil god is gone. But, oh, did we mention that the evil gods has spawned many monsters. So you have things like the Manticore, which is a legendary beast. And, of course, it has its own kind of regency over areas, pulling sway over goblins. And so, now, yeah, that's the other part is goblins in this game are present. Mostly as a wolf rider, savage got little guys, but... They are also the main antagonist, but they are also semi-neutral at times, open yeah. to trade and negotiation. Yeah, this is another interesting factor of birthright, okay? One of the, like, initial opening tenets here is that uh, the remaining goblinoids, now orc-free... Uh, well, they had, yeah, they were never orcs in this game. You know, this is, this is an orc, you know, but it's, it's not orc light. it's, you know... No orcs. It's not 2% orc, it's orc-free. Um, in right. this setting, the goblins are a effectively civilized race. Can they be aggressive? Can they be dangerous? Can they be treacherous? Yes, they most certainly can and will be at some point. But they are also capable of trade, commerce, reason, and craft. You know, they, they manufacture goods and are, you know, essentially a neutral force that could go either way at any given moment. Yeah, they don't like their slavery to the evil god who was banished. They yeah. definitely don't like... There's a great big guy running around called the Gorgon who basically is acting like the Kurgan and Darth Vader all rolled into one, slaying and killing all the regents in the area, taking... And that's the big thing here is where the Highlander point is, is when two blooded characters fight and one wins, they inherit a portion of that other region's power. Yeah, they get to count coup on the, the, the fallen. I also wanted to... Oh, I, I may have forgotten a tidbit here. What's that? Uh, oh, man. Well, it's going to curse me later, but we'll just go ahead and move on without it. Alright, so uh, moving on, just basically, there you have your setting. 
is that in the middle of this, there is arisen a new power, an evil known as the Gorgon, and he's just around there stomping around. Yes, I remember it now. Okay. When you mentioned the Gorgon and the Manticore, uh, I, I wanted to highlight just for a moment that in this iteration, in this setting, uh, monsters are not like, like, oh, it's right out of the old DM guide. No, no. This, this is augmented. You know, these are creatures of legend. There may only be... One. There's one. only one Manticore. There's only one Medusa. There's only Bingo. one vampire. And, and they're very powerful, and they are the boss monsters. In yeah, this these one. are not lighthearted, like, oh, we're going to take a stroll and punch out that, uh, you know, uh, Lamia. No, no, that is not how this works in this game. You... It, it is a climactic event to go after even one major monster. So, yeah, you still have giants, ogres, and yeah. uh, gnolls to fight, and, and you can punch goblins if you want. But by and large, you're going to encounter less of the monster foe and more of the scheming foe in the representation of mercantile interests like the Hacianic League. Trying to hedge your kingdom under its control, or you're also going to deal with raiders from Vosgard who see your coastal area is lightly defended and ripe for plundering, as well as dealing with the goblins in the forest who may be looking at raiding your inner uh, soft underbelly of your farming communities. And so you're going to have to work on that, building your armies and alliances. So the characters creation. Now is where we're probably going to go since we okay, set the we'll, stage. We'll begin with the creation of a character. Yeah, so you can have your choice of being blooded or non-blooded or half-blooded. And half-blooded is more, you have some investiture in this, but you're not as connected. Whereas if you're a regent, a scion, you come with a kingdom. That's right, your player character comes with a kingdom and an untold limited, or limited, but a large fortune in which, with which to amass their starting realm. And to support this, TSR gave out many little books. Uh, they were about six, seven dollars a piece, six ninety-five, and uh, little thirty-two page pairs that detailed all the places of each domain on the main continent. Yeah, so you could pick and choose one. So if you're a wizard, you would have a place that has uh, a long history of having a wizard protecting it. And you come from that dynasty. Or you could be a cleric running a theocracy that is blooded from the lines of the ancient gods. And so... <laughs> a a majocracy for the mages, a theocracy, uh, you know, uh, for the, the clerics, uh, a uh, nobility or, you know, feudal lordship for the fighters, and of course a kleptocracy for your rogues. And also rangers and paladins <laughs> could fit in here too. And so you had many different types, and of course using the kits and even expanding the skills of powers, you had a multitude of options to explore, all of course up to the DM and the players. Now, choosing whether your group was just going to be the standard murder hobos, wandering around doing things for these regents, is, is open. Yeah, theoretically permissible. I mean, uh, Birthright at no point excised... Uh, the simpler options uh, for familiar, traditional D&D play. They did not remove that. Uh, however, they did place an enormous emphasis on the, you know, more potentially complex scenarios with longer time periods to unfold. Uh, so it put a lot of options in the hands of DMs. 
uh, and also a lot of responsibilities with that, which we'll get to some of that later. Right. So as we're focusing on the characters, like your beginning Regency powers might be able to uh, detect and get bonuses to saving from poisons. could be handy in negotiations. But also <laughs> you could heal a little bit uh, faster than others, or you could even have the you know a, a scaly appearance and have armor. So... Yes, sometimes those are inheritances of other things. And yes, there is a great dragon in the setting which has a role to play. Yeah, you don't want to. Uh, that, that's not an easy let's go kick his button to get treasure. Oh, dragon. Let's just you know, let's go no. turn him over. For... Although I, I, I do love the, you know, like, hey, you know, for one, uh, like a powerful resistance to poisons. <laughs> but you drank from the same glass. I spent years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. Or in this case, I was just born with it. So it comes from <laughs> our ties to the Shadow Lord. But never go down against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> and so anyway, getting back to the game, what we're talking about here is the creation of characters. The use of Regency points then is based on the character stats. So if you didn't want to have get involved in that, yeah, you could create a group of adventurers, miscreants, and mercenaries that run around and do things on the behalf sure. of these regions and still be involved in the game. But if you decided to dip, jump fully in the deep end on this, you would potentially create a regent or a group of regents that each rule, the, rule their own realms but come together in sort of a federation or confederacy of types where they... Merge all of the realms. You could have the cleric obviously running the theocracy in with the help from the armies of the fighter type with some help with the ranger and his wood folk in the northern realm and then a magistocracy and kleptocracy and they would all form together their alliances. Yeah. Or you could play in a court where one character was the regent with his... Uh, Trusty stalwart allies. Yeah, his uh, court mage and regent and reeve, as well as of the exchequery, as well as a bard and other characters that just are along for the, riding the coattails of a noble. And a further possibility, not to be ignored, was that the players could also just as easily compete against one another. Yes. And yeah, absolutely legitimate in birthright terms. So you could put... But that would, that takes it away from more of the, the basis of individualism yes. of characters. But this game does support that. So it does, it is one of those things where you, if you played, say, like uh, the Bronstein game back of old, where you played by uh, your turns by uh, sealed letters where you would write down your orders for that turn, and then they would all be revealed one at a time. And you were bound to those orders. Uh, that is kind of where it came full circle. And so it's an interesting uh, point that Mike brings up here, is that that is another way to play this game. But creating the characters primarily would be a combination of those. So one character gets to be the regent. Well, he's the superstar. Well, not really, because now he's burdened with many tasks and can't, <laughs> lacks the freedom that a lot of the other characters can do. For instance, if you're a mage, yeah, you uh, obviously go well with the patronage of a powerful regent, but you also have the time to go exploring and doing things on your own. They give you that sort of downtime to create the magic items that wizards are renowned for. And moving along here to the thieves, or roguish characters, including the bards, there's a lot of intrigue and skullduggery that goes back and forth. If you can just look at uh, the Game of Thrones machinations of the Littlefinger during uh, Tyrion's reign as the Littlefinger, 
Oh, uh, as the hand. As the hand, yeah. Yeah, yeah Tyrion's time is the hand finding himself with, like, you know, little finger engaged. Like, he's got a, he's got a little finger in every single pie and every single Well, little finger was another character, the more of a uh, <clears throat> a true rogue. But, yeah. yeah, moving along to that, and then, you know, that is one where you could use the non-blooded regent campaign completely on your own to fend off a war while yeah. the main regent's off doing something else and not being, you know... Pratt, like Joffrey was. I told you not to trust me. <laughs> we wanted to listen. <laughs> well, next time I'll listen to that. There won't be a next time. Yeah, there isn't. So, <laughs> but yeah, you have a multitude of settings to play in. And yeah, you can have a loose confederacy or uh, alliance of player character regents going around stomping butt and doing things. Of course, set into this, the Gorgon is going to be building his realm. He's presumably the big bad guy, and he's going to be building his realm and drawing more forces to him. And yes, there are many evil humans and other untrustworthy types that are drawn to his cruel nature. And, and for the skilled DM, uh, timing is everything. Uh, remembering that like events are moving uh, outside the character's view. Uh, you know, you may drop hints and rumors. Uh, if they choose to investigate, they they may develop more knowledge of what's going on in the outside world. But the bad guys are supposed to be building up in strength, as you do. They yep. are also working towards long-term goals, uh, which will you know, most likely mean invasion and war. Uh, and woe betide the player who is bogged down in, like, well, I've poured 90% of my effort into building a mercantile empire of fabulous wealth. But I did not invest a lot in my own private army. Or have alliances with a strong military force that yeah. I aided. Uh, except that they're like two borders over, and they cannot come here in time to rescue me, should the Gorgon send its forces. Yeah, these were all considerations. That yeah, and you could have your normal adventure. Your uh, players, uh, the regent and his companions could travel to another realm, to to a accord or agreement of negotiations, and they could be waylaid by bandits or a group of marauding ogres from the hills. Always fun. Or find a strange deserted tower with an ancient relic contained within that has long been thought lost to the realms of Ben. Found out it was taken by another lord and hidden away. And so, yeah, a trap-filled dungeon is right there. And you can do these interspersed, which then I find... What I found from playing Birthright was that it was... A lot of the players enjoyed those small dungeon delves and... Ex oh, yeah. I mean, after the intricacies of uh, court... And, and trade and negotiations. Which, I should mention, mechanically, the game had multiple ways in which to deal with the passage of time and the interpretation yeah, so of events. Let's, so. As we're talking about the style of play, let's get into the game mastering. Now, we talked yeah. a lot about how, what the responsibilities of the DM are. And yeah, the DM is running the rest of the freaking world. Which, oh, yeah. But they made it pretty easy with a map. Now, you could keep track of this through tokens and other such things. Uh, which they provided ample amount, and it was a very nicely uh, and provided for game, especially for the time. Considering it's like for thirty bucks, you got a box full of two big booklets plus lots of maps, counters, and they the provided an abundance of material to support the DM. The product, you know, the entire product was well thought out. So Both if you had a safe place from cats or kids, you could put the map out, leave the counters yeah. there, and you know, keep track of it that way. And ideally, playing this game with, with a group would be the group would be divided among various tasks running one nation, helping one character get up so that that one regent 
can use the Regency points to effectively raise, maintain, and build their nation. They can also rely on the other player characters to do a lot of the other so-called grunt work, but you realize that there's a lot of responsibility into that. And some people missed that point. They said, well, it just supports one character as the superstar and the other ones are just supporting cast. Eh, not so. And the DM's job in this was to make sure that the characters who were running the trade or doing magic the, during the magic turn, during the domain phase, which we will talk about the timing. Yeah, the allotment of responsibilities could be easily broken up amongst multiple players. Uh, so that everyone had A, a useful purpose, and B, you know, like some time where the focus is on them as a participant. Yeah. So I, I do not think that was a legitimate complaint. I do want to throw in one really quick. Right on. Which, my personal critique, and I, I don't feel that this is a terrible deficit, but I, I honestly believe that it diminished the approachability and desirability of the game at the time. The complexity itself, which many gamers love, including myself, put it beyond the reach of beginning DMs. To manage a campaign yep. of this scope and this difficulty requires a lot of practice and a lot of homework. It is a challenge even to skill the DMs who had been you know, DMing for years. So this limits its approachability for almost anyone under that level of preparedness. Yeah, if this is your first campaign, you might have a hard time of it. However, I will counter this by saying they tried their best to ease that in oh, with yeah. those little supplements detailing your domain, with also instructions on how to run it as the player so that the DM isn't forced to have to reteach the player yes. how to do something. So those little domain packets they really helped. They a lot of good faith efforts to make this as approachable as possible because I, I think the staff at TSR fully understood that they had developed something fantastic and impressive, but also a little bit difficult to manage. So and so, yeah, going to back to the timekeeping, like normally timekeeping you would have is uh, turns during combat, turns outside of combat, and then... You know, the daily or weekly uh, routine that you go through in your campaign. They added the the domain turn, which was every three months you played out a domain turn, which had multiple phases inside of it. It could be the raising of armies, the movement of uh, goods across your land. Yes, you actually had to account for that. Um, yeah, and you want a wheat shortage, like, right before winter? Right, I and so that. to... To create things, you required certain resource points, which may sound familiar, like to Settlers Catan or other games. Oh, like, gosh, hey, I want to outfit cavalry. Son, you need a large amount of leather. Yep, okay. and you also need steel and horses, livestock. So you have to trade for those. And so, yeah, that becomes a big thing. Um, your Regency points allow you to change the land, and that is a unique, almost Arthurian type of uh, aspect, is that more the ones aligned with the blood of the good gods, the good god, have a lot of powers to change the land for the better, where yeah. people are invested and feel dynamic. And you can raise the morale. the land. Yeah, you know, know, that the good, you know, brings about a wellness of being for the entire nation. Uh, at, whereas, you know... The evil, evil turns it to darkness and a realm of terror and cruelty. It's never sunny in Barovia. No, it never is. <laughs> So, 
And also you have this deep lore. So you have all the aspects, but the main turns is where you fought wars. And wars are costly and they are not easily done. But rather than going to a new system, they just have this very simple yet intricate system that puts together all the components for war, archers, siege weapons, uh, footmen, heavy footmen, all the uh, assortments. It was a major facet of the Birthright campaign. But it setting. was simple to resolve in, in just a matter of just a few uh, roles. And so rather than sitting there for hours dictating a micro game, oh, yeah. which you could play with your players being part of the leaders, player characters, and regents being part of that, you could play them uh, out if you so wished. But if your regent went for that, then they were not allowed to do other things if they were going to go to war during that turn. Yes, uh, they definitely had a marvelous... At, I cannot say enough good things about the careful thought that was placed into how to manage something of this scope. So now, while I mentioned that the scope was very wide and very difficult yeah. for people to manage... That is not intended as some kind of slight suggesting that they did not make a good faith effort to manage this well. They really did. They put more time and effort into making this very large scale, very wide scope concept fit into well managed, neatly packaged portions. You know, just little bite size, if you will, uh, where, okay, we're dealing with this this turn, only a few roles involved in this. We're dealing with this next. Only a few roles involved in that. They apportioned things in such a way to ease the smoothness of play and to encourage participation by everybody at the table smartly. Which, hey, you know, you could tell that they had kind of reached uh, the high point of their, you know, skilled creative team here. In yeah, they'd really put a lot of effort. They had a bunch of top tier pros putting their thoughts in on this. And they had pushed this game out pretty well, and it was released, but unfortunately it died a quick death. It was only out for about four or five years, or four years, excuse me, before it was discontinued. It was shelved, there were some promised products, but, oh, slowly you feel that your will is draining out of you as the gaze of the arcane eye, its eldritch gaze settles upon you, and once again, you are forced to look at... Small projects as you fail your saving throw. So, what project does the eyes. arcane eyes... eyes everywhere in the darkness? Oh, I hate it here. It's all eyes. <laughs> so, here in the gaze of Eldritch Gaze of the Arcane Eye, we settle our gaze to and yours to ninth level games. Oh, yeah, these are the makers of uh, <laughs> Kobolds 8 hey, by baby. baby. Uh, they have a new item coming up, a game called Mazes. Uh, All hail King's Odd. It's going to get uh, a Kickstarter uh, kicking off on June 1st. But ninth level games, Christopher O'Neill you know, has consistently produced some games that like we have, you know, some of which we have personally used, like Kobold's Ate My Baby, uh, and others which we have found amusement in and heard discussed many times, like uh, <laughs> which I, I hope someday to play. Very good dogs of Chernobyl. The very good dogs of Chernobyl. <laughs> but also the maker of uh, Schrodinger's cats uh, and Pavlov's Love dogs. Dog, yeah. yeah, so 
this is a proven creator with a, a track record of actually producing their product. Right, and you know, for a small uh, press publication group, they put out some quality products that sure what to scratch the itch between your gaming sessions for small quick card games or board games all the way to a very fun uh, off-night Kobolds Ate My Baby. If you don't get, aren't able to get the crew together or there's a dropout during the middle of a massive investiture of your character's storyline, then this is the game to pull out and just whip it out and play. Oh, it, yeah, so many of the games, specifically from Ninth Level uh, and you know Chris O'Neill, uh, their creations are fast play. Uh, low complexity for the most part and really embraceable for like you know multiple short sessions uh, so that I mean aside from also not being cost intensive you know which is another perk in my book you like it shouldn't blow out the bank to have a good time on a you know Sunday night uh, and hey ninth level games can do just that all right so the arcane eye ceases its Hold on you and you're released back to your reality as it fades. And then, so we were talking about uh, something and yeah, something else happened. So, oh yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I don't all right, it was all eyes. It. It's all bad memories. Sorry. So yeah. All right. We were talking about birthright. And so um, the domain level of play, as much as it for some people was uh, kind of a a new mechanic, it allowed you to really play up what it was to manage a province and run the whole thing together and build up your Regency points through not only leveling your character, but also developing uh, alliances and, yes, conquering other opponents. Well, or in turn, possibly being conquered by other opponents. Yeah, and it also included... Sometimes the luck of the dice are not so kind. Maybe uh, your DM has decided that your next-door neighbors are, you know... Welcome to Unterland. Yeah, so both... Baron Underbite is yeah. your next door neighbor. So mentioning that as well, uh, priests and wizard characters had special powers that they could manifest rather than just beating the crap out of each other, was they could cast realm spells and war magic. And oh, so, yes. yeah, those were major things. Hey, if you think, like, having a planeswalker and an enchantment effect in Magic the Gathering that, like, you know... Uh, you know, this spell affects the whole world of play, and every card in play at this time is effect- impacted by this. You know, that, hey, the same concept was emerging in Birthright. You know, just, uh, you know, campaign-level enchantment. <laughs> so, uh, Birthright went on to spawn a strong outing of domain source books and uh, also some campaign ideas. There were three, I think it was, uh, also a number of novels, including by Simon Hawk. Oh my goodness, Simon Hawk? Yeah, he did the Iron Throne, which was... Holy cats, that's the guy who did the Time Wars saga. I loved that guy. So Sword and Crown was the one that we ran, and that is a really good module uh, series. We ran that, and it's for level 5 through 7, the sweet spot back in the second edition days. And the Sword of Royal which is one of the heroes, and that was a, uh, it's a little bit more higher level where you do actually take on a creature called the Chimera, which is more of a mad beast, and it's not what you quite think. But they had Book of Magecraft, Priestcraft. So it was not a bitchin' Chimera. No, it sure wasn't. 
although it was bitching in its own right. So there were player secrets, which were like Rosson, which was uh, primarily where we played. And then there were uh, books of priestcraft, the book of regency, and the book of magecraft, which really helped, as well as blood enemies, the abominations of Sorelia. Oh, uh, I, I assume that that was an expansion of the list of specific. Yeah, they monsters. came out. I think with the, in the main book, it was. I it's been a while, but uh, I think it, they had the Gorgon, the Vampire, the Manticore, and the Lamia as your main ones, and then and then Bravo. the. Uh, so they were ones that, they rule entire areas, domains, not countries that you would recognize, but more of monsters and being, the Lumi obviously being more served by uh, gnolls and of course the Manticore having a huge control of goblin fiefdom in there. And, you know, this creates that climactic arc where the, the band of heroes must secret their way through enemy lands, you know, find the, the back way into the leader's lair. Uh, and defeat them while surrounded on all sides by the evil one's minions, and hopefully get out of there with their skins intact. While still getting back in time to do that conference for the trade <laughs> guild. Yeah, so... <laughs> hey, it's tough micromanaging a nation. Nobody said it was going to be a peach. So there were a lot of things that were never talked about. That's why after like, you know, four to eight years as a king, you know, like they go into the job and their hair is all one color and they come out and there's, there's a whole lot of snow on the old mountaintop by the time they're done. It wears on you. So there are, excuse me, not talked about, but there are a lot of projects that were planned but never got realized as TSR was starting to yeah. uh, have its... Uh, Fortunes dwindle, and it was going into a tailspin at that point. So that contributed to that. But one of the bright points was, is when we're talking about the Manticore campaign, that's one where you could play goblins. Because once the Manticore is taken out of the picture, the goblins can revolt. Well, they would. <laughs> Obviously, They're pretty revolting already. Right, but they can revolt against the Manticore's grasp on them so and sorry. achieve their own freedom. I had to do that. <laughs> and so you could keep the... Uh, kind of campaign going by playing goblins or having some goblin allies for a change who of course wouldn't be trusted by their other goblin brethren because now they're too human looking but or acting but they're uh they're still able to be negotiated with which was a unique spin um besides having several books there was also birthright the gorgon's alliance by sierra online as it was known at the time because everything had to be online yeah, well, I mean, you, you might as well drop the Sierra part. But, I mean, that was an important software, you know, concern yeah. back in the day. And uh, it, I loved some of their games. And so this highlighted pretty much the same thing we talked about, the uh, Royal Bloodline coming back and using the Gorgon as principally the character that you overthrew and took over most of the continent for yourself. And, yeah, it was a tough game, and it was not easy to play, but you ended up around 18th level, so, hey, that's what you deserve. And for a guy like me who loves civilization, even though I didn't get to participate in that Birthright campaign long ago, much to my lament, uh, it's the kind of game that greatly appeals to my sensibilities, even now. And although TSR was fading and there there is some debate amongst some people that, uh, you know, this was a facet of their overreach and they mm -hmm. went too far and reached too much reached for too much and it exceeded their grasp and then they fell. I don't think this game was really a part of that. I I've, I've often blamed the literary publishing empire for uh, having led to a kind of crazed 
expansion, like uh, ancient empire style, where like the company just expanded outwards in all directions at the same time, and then the interior became terribly brittle. Uh, they couldn't sustain that forever. Uh, but Birthright... Well, it certainly opinion, didn't help it that it came out during a time of trading card games were starting to really hit their peak. 95, Magic yeah. Gathering. Yeah, others you're were... seeing that like that was the era of 4th uh, edition and Ice Age Magic, and it had come into its own. I mean, mm -hmm. Wizards of the Coast was at top form at that moment, and it was sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. Uh, but Birthright was a fantastic creation. It just in terms of the excellence of its production, uh, the thought and time uh, and the quality put into the making of that product was over and above much of what they had done before. I, I don't think there was ever such an ambitious project undertaken that actually turned out to be everything that it had been intended to be. Right. This is the case where it did. It worked out to be everything that they were trying to make it without fail. Yeah, and a lot of people have some, like Mike said, some divided opinions about that. Hey, I think they're all legitimate um, because it's from role playing is an experiential and subjective, ex well, experience. But yeah, um, yeah, it is. It is everybody's going to have a different experience coming out of it, and it's subjective to how it comes uh, to fruition. Sometimes you can do everything right and still fail because the scope can be rather daunting, and if you're not able to sell it right off the bat. This may be a difficult campaign for you, and it could have, as Mike's uh, alluded to earlier, this is one where it's not easy to sell outside of its initial push. If you weren't looking for a pseudo-medieval fan high fantasy setting that incorporated the rules of domain keeping, nation building, trade, and war, then yeah, this could be a tough game for you to get into so what's a good bellwether to use my my frame of reference for this is if you're checking out maybe i should try this with my players if this is an idea for you uh do a number of your players enjoy uh you know age of empires civilization games by sid you know sid meyer uh if you have a lot of players who are very open to that kind of experience then indeed, this, you know, like looking at a birthright campaign, a, a classic, uh, you know, resuscitation of the old birthright campaign, that might be in your wheelhouse. Now, if you've got people who are really more FPS, like first person shooter, <laughs> GTA 5, you know, all right, maybe this isn't for them. Uh, but either way, it's still a product that I look back on with like genuine amazement. There's well, yeah, part of me that goes, I can't believe anything this good ever got made. Right, and that's the other thing is, if you played Birthright, you weren't playing D and D, you were playing Birthright. That's the other thing that I noticed. Oh, pardon me, noticed during that uh, era was when we were playing Birthright, we really weren't playing normal D and D sort of structure, like where each uh, session was a game of experience points and treasure keeping. This was. A lot different and it focused a lot of the players attention away from things that normally they would be accustomed to in that environment nowadays i think it's more open yeah and if you're looking for copies of this different, well different parameters for success but wizard yeah. of the coast put it all out um all the things that were promised to be published that weren't are now available yeah wotc took the stuff that was in development and let it be findable so yeah so bless you yeah be, there's a birthright.net which is uh, 
dedicated to the uh, birthright setting for uh, D&D 3E. As well as uh, you can look up birthright memories of the campaign designers themselves. And, of course, on free downloads, there's a series of published and unpublished birthright products for free. So uh, you can also get them from Wizards of the Coast site because they're all linked there. Uh, I believe it goes through drive through our page. Oh, goodness. And... Attack cat. Cat fail. And if you have uh, a real inkling, there are a few other places that have some fan material made for it as well. So you can definitely... Get through that and get yourself some birthright going on, either with third edition or go back to the second edition. Um, either one are easily playable. I might, at some point, look at a Pathfinder uh, crossover. For really, that. Yeah. I mean, it would adapt well from the third yeah, edition yeah, version, so it, that would be an easy fix. I, I think you could seriously do that. And uh, having known how long you played Pathfinder with the same people, I bet you could really get them to. Just nail it. Yeah, there's a Kingmaker uh, video game. While it doesn't use the same Regency rules, Kingmaker Adventure Path for Pathfinder also, I think, took a lot of cues oh, from... goodness, yes. This... Uh, Birthright campaign. Yeah, this had the kind of, like, influence over games to come that, uh, <laughs> uh, that like, Black Sabbath had over the metal scene, okay? Uh, just... Birthright has a huge place in the legacy of gaming, so it, it long overdue. We've literally been talking about doing this episode for uh, like the last hundred and thirty episodes. I yeah, it's around. We first mentioned it around episode seventy or something. Yeah, so we've been a little remiss on getting onto it. Click, click. But <laughs> there's your uh, buzzword for the day. Uh, well, then I'll flap the kimono just on general principle. Sure, for nostalgia. Yeah, for nostalgia reasons. But, hey, we hope you enjoyed our little look back on Birthright. And if it's a campaign that you like, check it out. There's many places to grab it. And, of course, you can get it from uh, DriveThruRPG. Most of the stuff is pretty much in bundles at this point. Um, I think that Wizards has talked about maybe bringing it back, and there's always some talk about it. But, hey, if they were ever to bring it back, I think it would make a almost... It would make its own sub-game. And if oh, you're looking yeah. for something that combines a lot of the aspects of nation-building and uh, a magical uh, fantasy world, hey, th- that uh, Cerulea is uh, easily adaptable to many different areas, and you can change some of the names to make it in- fit into your own world if you really want to. So, with that said, I think that pretty much walks us around that whole project. Let us know what you think. You can... Uh, uh, hit the like button on uh, the subscribe part of our podcast and find that yes. little button up on the corner. Now it's getting a lot more harder. It's called the favorites button, actually, as I'm looking at it. Yeah, find that favorites button and uh, just click on that whole thing. And you can get notifications when we put out a new podcast, which we do every week. Yes, ethically source the favorites button. <laughs> yes, ethically. It's been through a lot. It's been a hard year, so we're just leaving it alone. Yeah. Normally, I would come up with various contrivances to screw it over, but but yeah, I mean, we you know it, it's been through enough. It's yeah. A hard time. We're gonna give it. We're gonna cut it a little slack. Uh, to being left behind at a restaurant with an unpaid for meal. That is it, it, just cold, man. Cold. It's not right. So it had to come. We're doing right by it now. But yeah, if you like what you uh, hear here, uh, you can support us. And of course, you can also get a hold of us on Twitter and our Facebook page, The Dice Are Screaming. So, until next time. 
May the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. Thank you.